to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Today we're going to be uh, covering uh, Daniel 3. Uh, and the name of the message is Beware of the Golden Idol. Okay? So I'm going to be covering uh, the uh, CSB, the Christian Standard um, translation, but it will be up on the screen, and uh, you can follow along with the New King James that we have. It's not too, too different. You know, there's debate on what translation is better. I think they're all great, at least most of them. So, all right, starting chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 90 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. By the way, a rule of the Bible is, if you see, my, if you see me repeating myself a lot, it's because how the text is written, but the reason why that is because it was an, or, an oral culture. So when they repeat over and over again, that's how they would memorize scripture. You're going to see a lot of names and a lot of things repeated over and over again. So don't get annoyed with me. Don't kill the messenger. It's, it's in the text. A herald loudly proclaimed, verse 4, People of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship. The gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, Zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship the <laughs> throne of, into the furnace, be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the provinces of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to these men who were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the music, <laughs> and every, uh, every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer this question. 
if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you, the king, to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than what was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up, thrown in the furnace of blazing fire. So the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to the advisors, Didn't we throw three men into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see a fourth man, not tied, walking around in the fires unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son, looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which by the way, these are Babylonian names. It probably would have been easier just to keep their Hebrew names, came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king of advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, and their robes were unaffected. And there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issued a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the gods of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made into a garbage dump. This guy's a violent dude. For there is no other god who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provinces of Babylon. That was a tongue twister. So we're going to start with the historical context on what we're talking about. The historical setting for the book of Daniel is the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. The book opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Judah in 605 BC, bringing Daniel and his friends as well as other captives among the nobility to Babylon. In 597 BC, so when we talk about the ancient timeline, the numbers go backward. So 605, 597, so the bigger number is, is the reverse of A.D. 1, 2, 3, or 4, or 5, okay? In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar once again besieged Jerusalem and brought back 10,000 captives. And in 586, he finally sacked Jerusalem for the third time, destroying the city. He destroyed the temple and sending the people into captivity in Babylon. Now Daniel's ministry begins in 605 B.C. when he arrived with his first Jewish captive. And that extended throughout the captivity, which ended in the third year of Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler who overthrew Babylon. So after Persia overthrew Babylon, he still was doing ministry there. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wanted the whole world to see what he was accomplishing. The crowd that gathered for the golden statue are top officials of the time. 
probably a lot of what you see in D.C., and they are guilty of virtue signaling and false worship. Okay? So imagine that. Imagine modern-day people, corrupt officials, politicians. Do you think they would um, bow to the golden statue? I think so. Now, Christotomos is an early church father. So when you think about the church fathers, think about the disciples of the disciples. John had a couple, and these are the ones that carried the faith after the, the apostles were either crucified or, or um, martyred. The enemy himself prepares in theater, and the king himself collects the spectators and prepares the list. Not of chance persons or of some private individuals, but of all those who have been honorable in authority, so that their testimony may be worthy of credit with the multitude that they had summoned for one thing, but they all departed having beheld another thing. They came in order to worship the image, and they departed. Having derided the image and struck with wonder of the power of God through the signs that had taken place with respect to these young men. In other words, Christotomos is describing a very important, uh, some very important things and intending important events. He also offers hope. The hope of them witnessing the faith of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, something they, they came in, in later in awe. So think about it. A lot of people are coming, and they're, they're, they're doing their bowing or whatever, and then all of a sudden they are struck with these three men that kind of destroys the monotony and also offers faith and hope. Now, the height of the statues. Ancient rulers commonly built statues that were very, very high. The Greek historian Herodotus, considered the father of history, claims that the statue of Marduk, another Babylonian god, stood 18 feet high. Okay? And if we go to Egypt, the great sphinx, although not a golden statue, stood 240 feet high, and it was 62 feet across. So in those days in Egypt and Babylon, it was very, very easy to just prostate the entire city with golden statues and, and these false gods, and size wasn't an issue. There always were giant scaled statues there. This reminds me of the definition of the evangelion. We as Christ followers are evangelists of the gospel. That is the messengers of Christ. Our leader, Christ, our message, salvation. However, the word evangelism didn't start out that way. And the word evangelism has pagan connotations, but luckily we believers have taken it over. And we've taken it for ourselves. It started out as a Roman ceremony. The emperor would come into a city and celebrate the victory, showing the people that he was the champion and protector of that city, usually having the king as a prisoner tied up behind him. So when Caesar came in, he was the evangelist of the good news of victory. So that kind of reminds me of what uh, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of doing. Prostate, look at me, look at me, look at all these statues, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, early evangelism before we've taken the word over. Now, let's talk a little bit about the music. Now, this is just my opinion, but I feel like the music has something to do with the grand worship of a giant golden idol and also false demons. Think about it like this. Think about the music that can cause us to sin, the kind of music that does something to the body, there is aggressive music. I used to be that guy, metal guy, yeah, ready for battle, all right. There's erotic music. I'll leave that one to your imagination. And there are all kinds of music to force a certain response, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And brothers and sisters, we must not forget that 
in Ephesians 2, 2, that our enemy is the prince and the power of the air. Now, anybody heard of the devil's tritone or the term Diabolus in musica? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, I'm going to tell you about it. Like the beast, it goes by many names. Diabolus in musica, which translates from Latin devil in music, the devil's interval, the tritone, the triad, and the flatted fifth. As this Latin moniker suggests, it's an evil-sounding combination of notes that's designed to create a chilling or foreboding atmosphere. The internal musical note was given a sinister name since listeners originally found it an unpleasant and surprising. But the tritone became a common tool in rock. Listeners expected artists to play chords and patterns that were pleasing to the ear. When a tone that wasn't uh, sweet to the ears, such as the triad, was inserted into the musical passage, it was unsettling since it didn't conform to the listener's expectation. There have been rumors that in the Middle Ages, composers and singers were forbidden from using these notes because of the dissonant, demonic tone it creates. Although the term Diabolus in Musica was indeed born in that era, since high clergymen in the church found that the tone to be the antithesis of godliness, there's no evidence that the technique was ever officially banned. Still, it was so distasteful to the church that no one dared to integrate it into their music. So, here I, here I think the music goes, and you're supposed to bow, and perhaps it has some sort of trance or connotation to make the people bow, the, the ungodly to bow. Now, the fear of death for compliance. Dictators of every sort seem to threaten people with death if you don't do what you're told. I mean, history is riddled with this sad fact. Those fear for their lives will comply willingly. Those who do not comply are seen as rebels and defying the king. Through fear, coercion, and manipulation, people will fall down and worship the false idol. So let me ask you this. What are some false idols in your life? Do these idols come before God? And if so, why? What is stopping you from putting God first? Pastor Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Gods at War, describes this struggle in our daily life. He used the word gods as false gods who wage the battle to claim victory over our heart. What we are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that is winning the war to lay claim to our hearts. And what if it isn't about statues? What if the gods of here and now are not cosmic deities with strange names? What if they, are, they take identities that are so ordinary that we don't recognize them at all? What if we do our kneeling and bowing with our imagination, our checkbooks, our search engines, and our calendars? According to Oz Guinness, a famous writer, idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our mistaken estimations. So I'm going to say that again. Idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our mistaken estimations. What he's saying is that idolatry is so huge that it runs risk of misunderstanding because the deceit can be so hidden, so subtle. 
it's so huge that, oh my goodness, like it's not a big deal. Yeah, I'll, I'll figure that out later. I'll have time for it later. I'll, you know, it's not a big deal. I'll figure it out. But that subtleness, that deception is what kills you with idolism. I mean, how often do we consider everyday things can be false idols that come from before God in our lives? I mean, I'm, I'm, I've seen it before. How many times have you heard someone say, I would love to spend time with God, but I don't have the time. We're all guilty of that, as well as many other excuses. I understand life can be busy. I mean, we're all busy. I'm busy. You're busy. At the end of the day, our busyness comes cho- becomes choices that we make. So whatever we're busy with is a choice that we make. So only a select few ref- uh, refuse not to bow down. So going back to our three characters. The Chaldeans were jealous and upset that these Jews did not accept the Chaldean ways. This is further illustrated in chapter 1 of Daniel, verses 3 and 4. The king ordered Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. In my opinion, the Chaldeans were were motivated by jealousy. How dare these Jews do what they did after we brought them here to learn our ways? In today's culture, it's so easy to pretty much worship anything or everything you want. It's also really accessible to do that. It's also really easy to tattle on your neighbor. If you can put the first slide up, please. Oh, let us sink in. This is important. So, tattling on your neighbor. I support the current thing. You better wear your mask. Now, I'm not here to debate on whether you should wear a mask or not, but what I am saying is it's easy to point the finger at your neighbor and demand them to do something against their will to virtue signal, to make you feel better, to bow down to the golden statue. Think about it. Or else. Bow down or else. It's also so easy to have your eyes glued onto your TV sets and news sources and just wait for something to pop, something big, to support, to to fit in, so we can complain and moan about it. Oh, did you hear this on the news? Oh, did you hear that? Did you not hear that? And then it's actually kind of funny with the whole news cycle, how it's a lull. It's like, oh my God, did you hear that? And then lull. So the next big thing pops. But the truth is only God's peace can give you that courage. Only God can give you an it's a well with my soul attitude. And if you're going to try to muster up strength from within without the Lord, you will find that your insides are either empty or dead. If you ever saw the movie A Knight's Tale, it's about Joust in the Middle Ages. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a good movie about chivalry in medieval times. It's also kind of like a comedy. It's actually kind of cool because it has like a modern rock and roll kind of soundtrack, which is kind of weird, but it kind of works. You remember, we just saw that recently. There's a scene where uh, the, uh, the good guy gets his butt whipped by the bad guy the first time around. And he says to him, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. See, even knights had style when they trash talk. So the king threatens the three, uh, the three men to a fiery, de- a fiery death. Origen, another church father, in his exhortation to martyrdom, 
because he was experienced martyrdom at the time, describes similar situations in the experience of martyrdom in the Roman Empire. It is not just old Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold or only that he, Mikesh, Shadrach, and Abednego, that he would throw them into the fiery furnace unless they worshipped it. Even now, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Rome, says to us, the true Hebrews, to, be, to exile us from our homeland. But as for us, let us imitate those holy men so that we may experience the holy dew that quenches every fire that arises in us and cools our governing mind. The even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the golden statue, even the church fathers can learn from them. And I think we can learn from them today. So here's an apologetic question. And you know me, I can't avoid apologetics, even if I tried. How do we know that these three men were sentenced to a fiery death? Let's assume for sake of argument, we have no way to know that they actually were thrown into the fire. Well, we have some ancient documents that can confirm this. The Code of Hammurabi confirms this, and that it, the Code of Hammurabi is a Babylonian legal text, and it was composed in 1755 to 1750 BC. It's a long time ago. It is the longest, best organized, and best preserved legal text from the ancient, middle, ancient Near East. I'd probably say the Silent Cinder comes second, but that's another story for another day. And there was another early Babylonian ruler named Rim, Rinsin, and he punished his subjects in this manner. So I love when he says, the, the, the guy said, we do not have to answer this question. Why did they say that? Because we will not serve your false gods. Our God has the power to defy even you, as well as save us from the fire. And even if he does not save us, he still won't worship your gods. And this is a do-or-die attitude, a zero-tolerance policy. Can you uh, put up the second slide, please? The men are standing their ground, and they're saying, even if we die, we die worshiping our God and stand in defiance of yours. Now, the fourth man in the fire. The fourth man in the fire is Christ in his pre-New Testament form. It is Christ who shows up as the Holy Redeemer to save his people from death, the one who can truly save. God sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. Now, throughout the whole Old Testament, Christ does this a lot. This is alone is another sermon, but Christ reveals himself in the Old Testament. And just for the sake of argument, there are, there are probably many ways, but three off the bat are one, foreshadowing. The lamb on the door is the, uh, is the blood lamb of Christ. Number two, actually a revealing coming into the text, as we are talking about today. And three, prophecies of Christ. Probably more, but I say those are the three main ones, based on my estimation. Now, Hippolytus is another church father, and he reveals this further. He seems to take the first person as if he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, but asking him very important questions. Tell me, Nebuchadnezzar, when did you see the Son of God, that you should confess that this is the Son of God? And who stirred your heart that you should utter such a phrase? And with what eyes were you able to look into this light? And why was this manifest to you alone and not to the satraps around you? Well, it's funny you ask. Thus it is written, the heart of the king is in the hands of God, Proverbs 21.1. And of God is here, whereby words stirred his heart, that he might recognize him in the furnace and glorify him. And this idea of ours is not with good ground. The scripture showed beforehand that the Gentiles would recognize him, Christ incarnate. 
And this idea of ours is not with good ground. The scripture showed beforehand that the Gentiles would recognize him, Christ incarnate. And also, just to kind of give a little more of a highlight, is Christ also is hidden in the New Testament, but he reveals himself on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verses 30 to 32. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said by, to one another, which, by the way, this is one of my all-time favorite. If I had to pick one line in the entire Bible, this is probably up there. Did not our hearts burn with us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? If you understand that phrase, it speaks a thousand words. And I'll close with this. God's power is so great. He can deliver anyone from certain death. He can even deliver the most wicked hearted to himself. Speaking of which, who remembers the Summer, Sam, the summer of Sam Killer? It was before my time, but I, I know who he is because I'm a history guy. Right. Okay. Did you know that he's a born-again Christian now? According to his pastor, who's one of his most frequent visitors in prison, he told People Magazine that he grieves over what he did but at the same time does not want to get out of prison because he knows he deserved to die and deserved to be exactly where he is. Now, Berkowitz just wants to warn young people who are on the road to destruction to choose a different way. One of his ministries is to reach out to young people to show them the consequences of their actions. And also another part of that source talks about how if he can go back, they would ask him if he can go back to his old self, what would he say to him? He says, run run away, run the other direction, because your life is full of trouble unimaginable. So, all in all, this is a testament to the power of God. Nebuchadnezzar accepted the truth that God could miraculously deliver his people. And this he was in agreement with, the biblical view that God can override what is seemingly a closed system of cause and effect in the physical world, and this can be found in Luke 1.37 and Matthew 19.26, where it basically says that with man, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And I think with the all things being possible is proof that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, didn't uh, get burned by the fire. So I, I implore to you, guys, to you guys and gals that uh, know that, remember that. God can come into the physical world and do anything and change anything. Remember that in your darkest moments. Remember that the Lord can come and save you if necessary. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, 
please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.